You're listening to Policy Currents, a weekly podcast from the RAND Corporation. I'm Deanna Lee. And I'm Evan Banks. Every Friday, we bring you new insights from RAND's latest research and commentary. It's July 10th. With stay-at-home orders in place and many brick-and-mortar stores shuttered, you might expect there to be a big increase in online shopping. But according to a new RAND survey, almost two-thirds of Americans say that they haven't changed their online shopping habits since the pandemic began. Only about a quarter of respondents reported shopping online more often, and 13% said that they're shopping online less. Among those shopping more, most made only small increases in their habits, and almost no one made significant increases, like shifting from never shopping online before the pandemic to shopping online daily. Perhaps unsurprisingly, Americans in more affluent households were more likely to increase their online shopping. More than one-third of households with incomes over $125,000 increased their online shopping, while only 20% of households with incomes under $40,000 began shopping more online. There were also differences between older Americans and younger Americans. Younger people were most likely to shop online before COVID-19. Almost half of people under 35 were shopping online once a week or more already, and that rose to more than 60% after the pandemic began. In short, the older people are, the less likely they are to shop online. And finally, we've found that people who live in urban and rural areas have similar online shopping habits. Before the pandemic, urban and rural habits were nearly identical. During the pandemic, people in urban areas increased their online shopping only slightly more than did people in rural areas, meaning that the overall rates are still very similar. And gender was another factor that made very little difference in online shopping rates. To see the complete results from this survey, visit RAND.org. COVID-19 is clearly a major threat, but isolation to stop its spread can do damage as well to economic security, to social connections, and to our mental and physical health. So how can Americans balance the threat of infection against the daily activities they value? According to RAND's Shanti Nataraj and Sita Nataraj Slavov of George Mason University, the only path forward may be to learn to live in a riskier world. This is difficult because the risk posed by COVID-19 is different. We all take risks in life, of course, but the pandemic presents a level of risk that most people haven't experienced on a daily basis. For instance, in 2018, nearly 38,000 Americans died in car accidents. Compare that to COVID-19, which has already claimed more than three times as many American lives in just the first half of 2020. That's a scary number, but taking calculated risks may still be worth it for most people. Just as people mitigate the risk of a car accident by wearing their seatbelts, buying a car with airbags, and following speed limits, they can mitigate the risk of COVID-19 by wearing masks, holding events outdoors, and physically distancing. Policymakers can help, too, by investing in testing capacity and encouraging everyone, symptomatic or not, to get tested regularly. It's true that the national discussion surrounding COVID-19 is becoming increasingly polarized. 
On one extreme, there are those who say that returning to normalcy isn't worth any increased risk. On the other, some people oppose any restrictions on or changes to their pre-COVID-19 lifestyles. But since we're likely going to be living with a pandemic for many, many months, the only path forward probably lies somewhere between the two extremes. It involves accepting a higher level of risk and taking sensible steps to mitigate that risk. In the wake of numerous police killings of black Americans, calls to defund the police have grown louder. In response, Los Angeles is moving forward with a plan to reallocate $150 million from the LAPD to social supports, such as job programs and health services. RAND research provides some evidence to back up this approach. For example, one recent study found that more than half the mental health population of the L.A. County Jail, more than 3,300 people, were appropriate candidates to be treated in community-based clinical programs rather than being incarcerated. This shows how police, jails, and prisons have become a major de facto mental health treatment system in the U.S., In fact, county jails have become the largest mental health facilities in the country. Another RAND study found that a supportive housing program in Los Angeles helped people experiencing homelessness achieve high rates of stable housing and low rates of felony rearrests. Results from studies like these show how reinvesting law enforcement dollars into social programs could help L.A. move beyond its long history of police violence and disenfranchisement to promote equal outcomes for black citizens. But it's important to note that the quality of the social programs that receive reinvestment is critical. RAND experts also note that $150 million would likely only be the beginning of reinvesting police funds. At nearly $2 billion, the LAPD still represents, by far, the largest line item in the city's budget. COVID-19 has exposed weaknesses in U.S. pandemic preparedness and response. That's according to a recent congressional testimony by RAND's Daniel Gerstein. Specifically, he explains the shortcomings of the strategic national stockpile of drugs, vaccines, and other medical products. The stockpile was originally developed to help protect the country against bioterrorism. And although the stockpile was used in the COVID-19 response, it was never intended to handle a truly national crisis. Fortunately, there are ways to address the problem. Here's Gerstein. The first imperative is we need a bipartisan commission to look hard at the national performance during this pandemic. It should consider the basic assumptions that we've used in developing the strategic national stockpile and our emergency management doctrine. It also needs to consider what our expectations are of all levels of government, that is federal, state, local, and tribal territorial. The second imperative is that public health must be elevated to and receive prioritization and funding as a national security issue in the same way that the Department of Defense and the intelligence community are funded and prioritized. Gerstein goes on to say that he rejects the notion that COVID-19 was an event that we didn't see coming. On the contrary, there's been ample evidence of the potential for a pandemic and more than one national commission to advise on how to plan for such an event. As for America's COVID-19 response, Gerstein says that, quote, 
Competing priorities, inadequate funding, and a lack of national focus led us to ignore this potentially existential crisis. That's why preparing for the next global health emergency requires action now. Teaching media literacy is one way that schools can help combat the diminishing role of facts in American public life, a trend we at Rand call truth decay. According to results from our new national survey, teachers and schools across the country are already taking steps to address students' media literacy and use. Roughly two-thirds of secondary social studies teachers said that they're putting at least a moderate emphasis on media literacy in their classrooms. However, many teachers also reported concerns about students' media literacy, including how much media students consume and their limited ability to determine whether what they read online is credible. Here's one finding that's especially telling. Most secondary teachers who responded to our survey said that their students had made unfounded claims and shared hateful social media posts in the most recent month. This is particularly concerning in light of the COVID-19-related school closures, which have left many students free to spend more time on social media. What can be done to help address some of these issues? Well, state and school district leaders can consider ways to better support teachers' needs with regard to media literacy. And curriculum developers can produce materials that better address the media literacy challenges that teachers report most often. Parents can play a role, too, by promoting healthy approaches to social media use at home and by helping kids learn how to evaluate the credibility of online content. Prolonged stress is toxic to the human body. It alters hormone levels, weakens the body's defenses, and wears a person down even at the cellular level. In fact, stress is a known risk factor for six of the leading causes of death in the U.S. And in marginalized communities, stress can be a corrosive force, accumulating over generations and causing despair, disinvestment, discrimination, and disparity. When this happens, any new crisis, including a pandemic, can be a tipping point. In 2018, RAND researchers developed a new framework to understand how toxic stress builds in communities. The framework involves more than just tracking the usual data points, like unemployment rates or crime statistics. To truly understand how stress is affecting a community, researchers also need to hear firsthand from residents about their perceptions, their experiences, and their stories. Rand's Anita Chandra put it this way, quote, When you look at the histories that communities have, the traumas they carry, you start to get a better understanding of what they're really dealing with. Take COVID, for example. It's not enough to say more black people die than white people. You have to look at what is weakening the health, not just of individuals, but of communities. RAND is a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. For more on what we covered this week, check the show notes at rand.org/podcast. We'll see you next week.